You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Wheelbarrow. Hello my radio friends, welcome to the program today. Yes, today's topic might seem rather strange, but I'm confident you'll understand as we go along. When I was about 12 years old, my parents bought a second farm in the western Murray Mallee region of South Australia. The nearest town was Cambrai, where I did much of my schooling. The previous owner had let the farm run down and the farmhouse was a simple stone building with a skillion roof. Before it would be suitable for us as a family to occupy, renovations and extensions needed to be made. So Dad drew up plans, made measurements and all the other necessary arrangements and commenced building the foundations and walls himself with, of course, assistance from my older brother and me. The walls were made of poured concrete between planks, specially set up to hold the concrete mixture. There were plenty of limestones in parts of this property, and stones were set in the soft concrete to add strength and to cut down on the amount of concrete needed for the job. With freshly mixed concrete to be moved and stones also to be moved, Dad decided to purchase a new pneumatic-tired wheelbarrow. It was a fine wheelbarrow, and I had to use it a lot when helping with the building project. About ten years later, Dad decided to retire, so he put that particular farm up for sale. With the now impressive white-walled home set on the side of a hill and a good season when the crops and grass grew well, it was a very short time before someone wanted to purchase the farm. As is the case, when a farmer intends to leave his property, all the tools and equipment he no longer required are laid out, and an auction known as a clearing sale, is held. Everything offered for sale was sold, including the wheelbarrow. My parents moved to a new home in the northern suburbs of Adelaide to begin their retirement. My mother was delighted. She joined various clubs, craft groups and orchestras. Here she could indulge in cultural activities which were not available in the country where we lived. Dad built a new shed, a shade house. He remodelled the garden and did lots of painting. One day, while doing some of these jobs, he kept looking for the wheelbarrow, only to be reminded that he had sold it at the clearing sale. He liked that wheelbarrow. It had served him well. Instead of buying a brand new wheelbarrow, he phoned the neighbour who'd purchased his old one and asked if he could buy it back. The neighbour agreed, and so Dad went back to near where we had lived in the country 
and brought the barrow back to Adelaide, sticking out of the boot of his car. Since then, my father has died, and I have the wheelbarrow. It's quite old, but gets occasional use via me. It's kind of like an old friend. The wheelbarrow was once Dad's. Then he sold it, that he lost possession of it. But then he redeemed it, and it became his again. Now, there is a very profound spiritual application that this simple little story illustrates, and I want to share that with you today. When you read the first few chapters of the Bible, you will read about how this world and what's in it came into existence. It's the creation story. Now, I'm aware that many people regard the Old Testament as nothing more than myths and legends, and therefore they do not believe the creation account. Instead, they accept the theory of evolution to explain origins. My personal opinion is that the theory of evolution, although widely accepted, cannot and does not explain the origins of life with integrity, and so I reject it. I believe the Bible is a true book, and what it says is authentic and plausible. Genesis 1 verse 1, the first verse that the Bible explains, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's not my intention today to defend creation, nor to attack evolution although I am prepared to do both when necessary. The Bible goes on to explain the different stages of creation, finishing up with the creation of man. The first man was named Adam, and the first woman, Adam's mate, was named Eve. They were given an idyllic environment in which to live, and they were happy. In the cool of the evening, God would come to their garden home, named Eden, and walk and talk with them. Peace, wonder, innocence and joy abounded. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, the Bible records, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now what does that mean? It means that although God is the overall, overall ruler of the universe, man was made ruler of the new dominion God had made. In other words, Adam became the prince of this planet. Just as my dad had bought himself the wheelbarrow and became the owner of it, Adam was put in charge of planet Earth. All went well for a time, but then entered an undesirable villain. So where did this troublemaker come from? 
Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Revelation chapter 12 are the sources where we can find the answer. Revelation 12 verses 7 to 9 gives a brief account. It says this, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Back in verse 4, the Bible uses imagery to explain where the angels became involved. The dragon swept a third of the stars out of heaven with his tail. And stars, in this passage, refers to the angels. Satan, with certain of the angels, was cast down to the earth. But how come there was war in heaven? Heaven is supposed to be a place of peace and happiness and righteousness, isn't it? Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 21, sheds light on what happened, as well as in Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 11 to 19. There's a lot to read, so why don't you read it yourself? I'll just give you a summary. Satan was once a created being, an angel of great beauty and importance, serving God in heaven. At that time, he was named Lucifer. But somehow he became jealous of God and wished that the adoration and worship the other angels showed God could be shown to him. He thought there was good enough reason because he was important and he was of great beauty. A feeling of rebellion swirled in his heart to the degree that he worked out a plan. He would begin a coup, not by open warfare, but by a subtle whisper campaign. He would try to convince the other angels that God was not as he claimed, a God of love, but instead a tyrant. He would suggest that the angels only served God because there was no alternative. He would then present himself as an alternative candidate. I suppose that in their innocence, many unsuspecting angels fell for his trickery to the point where Lucifer made a challenge to be the ruler of the universe. This left God in a very uncomfortable predicament. His character had been challenged, and there was a rebellion against him. What could he do? Could he have wiped Lucifer and his followers out? In other words, could he have zapped them 
destroyed them out of existence? Of course he could have. After all, he had created them. Just one word, and they'd be gone forever. But what would be the implication of that action? For the two-thirds of the angels who did not fall for Lucifer's schemes, there would be a continuing doubt about God's character. Instead of serving the Lord out of love, they would serve him out of fear. Zapping the rebels would be a bad choice. But God could not tolerate the rebels remaining in heaven, so they had to be evicted. Hence, they were cast out of heaven. As a rebel, Lucifer's name was changed to Satan. Although they were cast out of heaven, God did not destroy Satan and his cronies. Why? God had to let things run their course so that the whole universe could see the results of Lucifer's rebellion and each individual could evaluate it for him or herself. The Bible does not say whether Satan and his crew first went to other worlds in the universe and were rejected there, but we do know that he, much to our misfortune, ended up on this one. We're going to have a little break and then we'll go on straight afterwards.
Well, what would you say to that? Some people might say, Amen. Well, back to what I was telling you about before. Here we ended up on this beautiful new planet that God had created with Adam and Eve as the first people. Everything's beautiful and new and Adam and Eve are innocent. And then Satan with his evil angels come down here. Genesis chapter 3 explains how Satan got his foothold here in this earth. In their beautiful garden home, God had placed two special trees, one called the tree of life and the other the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve had free access to all the trees of the garden except one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, why were Adam and Eve warned to keep clear of and not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? I'll try to explain. God's nature and everything God does is of love. Love has to be, sorry, love has to have an alternative. If there is no alternative, there cannot be love. And it works like this. If my wife has no alternative for her affections, then her affections for me could be considered forced. But as it stands, it is possible for her to give her affections to someone else. I hope she doesn't. If she does choose to give her affections and allegiance to me, that's how I know she loves me. That's how love is proved. She gives her affections to me, although she has the possibility to give her affections to someone else. The tree in the garden allowed for choice. And as long as Adam and Eve obeyed God, he was assured of their love. Now the intruder, Satan, makes his move. One day when Eve was near the middle of the garden where the tree of knowledge of good and evil grew, Satan, presenting himself as a beautiful, intelligent creature, a serpent, spoke. At first he put a wrong proposition that would evoke an answer. Genesis chapter 3, the first part of verse 1 says, Did not God say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, verse 2, I'm going to give my paraphrase. No, said Eve. We can eat from any or all of the trees except one. This one right here in the middle of the garden. God said that if we eat the fruit or even touch the tree, we will die. Now, Satan tries to get Eve to distrust God and says, Huh, you won't die. God has kept special knowledge from you because he knows that if you eat that fruit, 
you will become like a god yourself. Come on now, try it. Won't hurt you. It'll give you a higher plane of existence. With that, Eve foolishly took of the fruit and ate some, and gave some to her husband Adam, and he ate it too. Too late. Suddenly, they realized that they were naked. Straight away, they realized that they had sinned, and just as suddenly, they realized that they had relinquished their rights of dominion over this planet, because they did the bidding—that is, they obeyed someone else. So at that point, they had a new master. A deceitful one. In effect, by doing what Satan wanted, he became the prince of this world in place of Adam, and his reign has been a reign of terror ever since. Ah,、oh, how many times our first parents must have lamented their choice to honour someone else other than God who made them. When their firstborn son murdered his own brother, the weight of guilt because of their submission to the devil must have been something terrible. When God removed them from their garden home and they had to work for a living, that must have almost crushed them. Just like the wheelbarrow, as where Dad sold his wheelbarrow, he relinquished his ownership. Adam and Eve, and the whole of humanity, ever since, relinquished eternal life, and had to die. So, what was God to do? Should He zap them, and destroy them? No, that was not His nature. Besides that, all the faithful angels and all the beings of the universe. Would doubt that God's rule was a rule of love, if He did that. So, what did Dad do? He bought the wheelbarrow back, for a similar price as he sold it for. God had to rectify the situation, and buy back people from serving the enemy, Satan. But he had to do it in such a way that no living being could ever say that God acted out of any other motive than love. The plan of redeeming lost sinners would have to involve two main things: showing up Satan's trickery and deception, plus demonstrating that God Himself was love. But the price of buying back humanity would be a terrible price. It would cost him the most precious thing he had, his life. Thus, Jesus, God the Word, came down to this earth as a man, subject to Satan's temptations and interferences, and to eventually submit his sinless life. In exchange for the lives of repentant sinners, 
Now, if that isn't the greatest demonstration of love, I don't know what is. I sometimes wonder what some people believe. When they thank God for saving them from their sins and for forgiving them, do they realise that by his sacrifice, God was buying them back? If Mr Piltz, the man who bought Dad's wheelbarrow at the sale, demanded a million dollars as his price for Dad to redeem the wheelbarrow, my father probably would have said no. He didn't care for the barrow that much. But Jesus gave his all to buy us back because he does care for us that much. You know, my friends, the gospel that's the good news about salvation has to be the very best news in the whole world. And you know what? Jesus bought me back, and he wants to buy you back. Yes, you. He has paid your price, but you need to be willing to swap sides and instead of serving the evil one, the deceiver of mankind, he wants you to make the decision to be his and to be someone who receives eternal life as God originally planned for humanity, right in the beginning at creation. When you make the decision to repent from your unrighteousness and to accept what Jesus has done for you, Make sure you listen for the applause and cheering. Because, as it says in Luke fifteen seven, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And let me tell you this, you'll have a lot of joy too.